Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time for a journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. The Event Horizon features writers, lecturers, artists, filmmakers, and other talented creators of the fabric of this marvelous continuum we call science fiction. Every show we do is special in some way. We bring to you the voices of science fiction, fantasy, science fact, and fandom of the present, and sometimes of the future, as we invite new creators to our midst. This episode underscores how important the work is that we do here on the Event Horizon and on Krypton Radio. This evening we present to you a two-part interview with the recently late Frederick Pohl, who passed away on September 2nd, 2013, and the late Isaac Asimov, who left us on April 6, 1992. It comes to us via the Fanish Oral History Project at thevoicesoffandom.com and was originally recorded in 1972 for the pilot episode of a TV show called First Edition. But the show was never finished, and it never aired. This is probably the first time many of you have heard this recording. The recording came to thevoicesoffandom.com from the hands of a private collector, someone whom many would recognize if we gave his proper name, but he wishes to be known only as Burbank396. Without further ado, Krypton Radio and the Event Horizon present the interviews. Welcome to what I'm afraid I have to call the first edition of First Edition. This will be a program in which we hope that we will arouse your curiosity and fascination by talking to writers, some distinguished, some uh, notorious, some interesting, some all three. But in any case, writers who have given us something that is worth talking about, and we hope worth reading, and we're going to start this series with a, uh, a splendid combination where you get I think in the work of science fiction writers, both escape and a certain amount of uh, meat for the imagination, food for thought. I mean, there are escape romances which are just about a girl who is foolish enough to go to some castle, and there are escape stories which take us out into the cosmos or the galaxy or whatever, but which also have some scientific or anti-scientific in modern terms sometimes statement to make which is interesting, and I think that the man who is our guest today is one of the best of these. He's written 128 books, some of which are very deep and mathematical, and some of which are fascinating. He is a scientist as well as a science fiction writer and is an associate professor at Boston University School of Medicine. He's written I, Robot, Pebble in the Sky, End of Eternity, Caves of Steel, and has the Foundation Trilogy to his credit, and his newest novel is called The Gods Themselves. If you are a science fiction zealot, and most science fiction readers are all zealots, you know that I'm talking about Dr. Isaac Asimov, and he's here today not on account of that novel, but because he has interestingly assembled his very early work and put a framework around it showing us how he came to write it and what it's like to be a young writer who's trying to make up his mind whether to be a teacher or a writer. And a little further on, after he and I have talked on an impossibly high scientific philosophical level, we will bring in Mr. Frederick Pohl, who is also a distinguished science fiction writer, and at one time or another was editor to Isaac Asimov, agent for him, friend, a whole lot of things, and that's why we're bringing him in. 
first question I want to ask you, Dr. Asimov, is isn't it true that science fiction fans or readers more than anybody else have a tremendous feeling about completeness, that they want everything of a writer? Uh, yes, indeed, and that's exactly why the early Asimov was written, because I received letter after letter asking where they could get my early stories and where they could find them, and I resisted for quite a while because I wasn't at all satisfied with the, with the level of writing, the literary value of these stories, and finally I let myself be talked into it, and in addition to the stories which appear in chronological order as I wrote them, I also have what I consider a kind of literary autobiography uh, telling the circumstances around each story. And the value of the book as a whole is not in the stories themselves, though some of them aren't too bad, and some people might like them all for all I know, but in the evidence it shows of how my writing style improved with time. Now, people keep asking me, uh, how can I write well? And they always suspect me of being above myself when I say I don't know. And from now on, when someone says, how do you go about writing well? I will say, read the early Asimov and see how I did it, because I don't know. Well, it was suggested by Anthony Trollope that a good writer like a good carpenter is a man who gets a good deal of practice, that by writing itself you get better at it. There are some writers who seem, after 50 or 60 volumes, to disprove that theory. <laughs> but, but I want to go back to the, uh, the science fiction thing. Well, as a, a youth, I bought that copy of Amazing Stories, which contained uh, Hugo Gernsback's Ralph 124C41, which you may remember was spelled with the letters and numbers 124C41. Plus. Plus, that's plus right, 124C41 plus. And later, some critics pointed out that it really meant 124C, the future. And I remember being terribly moved when reading it to discover that Ralph uh, went to lunch in a box of light. In other words, they shone nourishing beams. And, <laughs> and in speaking to his fiancée, said, you know, there was a time when human beings actually put material into their mouths and, you know, please, not while I'm eating. <laughs> and as a boy who didn't care to eat, I wanted to live in that future world. And I think that most early science fiction that I read was substantially hopeful about the future. I would guess, and I want your educated comment on this, that perhaps Huxley's Brave New World was the watershed. Was that the first major work of science fiction which said, and I think it is a work of science fiction, yes. that the future isn't going to be better, it's going to be worse. Well, in what we might call literary science fiction, that is the kind of science fiction that appealed to the general public and which we, youthful science fiction buffs who were restricted to magazines, were not part of, it's hard to say what started it. Uh, back as early as 1923, Carl Chapek's R.U.R. Mm -hmm. was uh, pessimistic. But in the science fiction magazines, the core that we lived on, I think the watershed came with the atom bomb. Somehow, after the atom bomb dropped, there came to be a whole rash of stories of atomic doom. And this, one way or another, has continued. Now it's being succeeded by a more general ecological doom story. That is, nuclear warfare isn't the only way now in which we can destroy ourselves. But prior prior to the atomic bomb, the general view of the future was always that of an expanded human race through space and advanced technology and so on. I think the worst that happened to the human race in the science fiction I read when young was that we got to have very big heads and very small arms and legs and pushed buttons, and then there was some race from the hills called contemptuously pedestrians who would eventually take over and restore a more natural world. But has there not grown up then also, you early or pioneer or classic science fiction writers were mostly scientifically oriented. Has there not grown up an anti-science group? Yes. In fact, I, I frequently divide the kind of science fiction we've had since the mid-twenties when the magazines started into three, uh, three periods. The first one was from 26 to 38, where most of the science fiction writers were journalistically oriented. They were tend to be newspaper men or pulp writers generally and so on. And then from 1938 to about 1960, 
there was a strong infusion of scientists and engineers, perhaps not professional ones, but those who are interested enough in it to self-educate themselves to uh, a point where they could write intelligently about it. Since 1960, however, there has the new writers have mostly tended to be not only non-scientific, but actually anti-scientific. And uh, they call themselves the new wave, or are called the new wave. And uh, this has meant that a person like myself, who belongs to the second period and is scientifically trained, it tends to be old-fashioned now. It hasn't hurt me economically, but uh, I, I hate to feel that I'm, in, you know, I'm, I'm bypassed. Think of yourself as a classic. That sounds better. <laughs> I, am, uh, I can't, like a real fan, claim to have read everything of yours. And, of course, some of your books are purely scientific and are not so much read as absorbed. But I am aware of your specialization in what might be called literary robotics or the study of the robot. And I have always found in reading your work that you are, to my mind, of two minds about whether it's a good thing or not. Do you feel that? Uh, well, I tend to be optimistic about scientific advance. That is, uh, I, I tend to approve of technology generally. On the other hand, if I think of some story which involves a kind of ironic development where what seems to be advancing technology turns out to have disadvantages, I will always write the story. I will never let a good story be spoiled because it doesn't agree with my ideology, for instance. Uh, there are times when I've unwittingly written stories that, are, that disagree with my ideology terrifically. I once wrote a story which, after I read it over, afterwards published, seemed to me to be pro-war. And I didn't realize that until Graf Conklin, a great science fiction critic, said that the story was good, but he disagreed with its ideology. And so I reread it, and I wrote to him and said, Good Lord, I disagree with its ideology, too. Now, you are two men who, according to most psychological theories, should be antithetical. As a writer, you're an artist. As a scientist, you are a realist. You find that the gears of the two Isaac Asimovs, one a writer and the other, Dr. Isaac Asimov, a scientist, do they grind sometimes? Well, they don't because one is so vastly predominant that there's no chance of conflict. Uh, as I explained in the early Asimov, I began fully intending to be a chemist, or at least either a do first a doctor, then a chemist. But my, my impression was throughout that I'd make a living in science one way or another, it never occurred to me that I could possibly make a living writing, even if I wanted to. And it wasn't until I actually became a professor that my writing reached the point where I could make a living by it, and by then I knew that I had been a writer all along anyway. And uh, back in 1958, I made my choice. I, I kept my title. I'm still Associate Professor of Biochemistry at Boston University School of Medicine, but I don't actively teach anymore. Since 1958, I've been a full-time writer, and I view myself as a writer primarily. And if there ever were a conflict between the two attitudes, writing would win hands down. But does your scientific training, which is extensive, a good deal of the biographical material which surrounds the stories in the early Asimov is about the very small sums you got for writing and the very large dedication that you gave to science. You spent an awful lot of time studying do you think that your scientific training sometimes grabs at your imagination and pulls it down or back or away from some concept that you were almost going to seize? Ah, that's an interesting point. Uh, I have indeed been thoroughly educated in science, and I think, in a sense, it keeps me. It keeps me from letting my imagination go where it might otherwise go. And suppose, for instance, I want to write a story which must have a faster-than-light drive. Now, I am not free to just be faster than light. It's thoroughly ingrained in me that light, light speed in a vacuum is the maximum speed you can have. So I have to go to all the trouble of going around that, of having my speed of faster-than-light drive explained in terms of a relativity theory that disallows a faster-than-light drive, you see. In fact, I'm going to be writing a novel someday, I keep meaning to start it each month, uh, in which the 
whole basis, the whole background of the novel, will be an attempt to work out a faster-than-light drive in terms of relativity. But one of the things which has been used as a club to beat science fiction is, in a sense, just that, that you, that you, not you, but that many of you are mired in science, and the critic says impatiently, why doesn't he just write, turning on the hyperdrive, I shot across the space warp, they don't want to know how the hyperdrive <laughs> works. As a matter of fact, a great many people do just that. As a matter of fact, I recall the biggest example of that in the mid-30s, a fellow, it was actually John W. Campbell, Jr., who later became editor of Astounding, wrote a story under the name of Carl Van Campen, in which he, in the story, that is, broke the law of conservation of energy. And people wrote to him to prove why he was wrong, and he wrote back to prove why he was right. I'm sure he was wrong, you understand, but for month after month, there was this battle of the equations in the, uh, in the uh, letter columns of Astounding. Uh, so you're right there. Uh, nowadays, there is a greater sophistication. You do take many things for granted. You assume, at least in the magazines, that the readers have been reading science fiction for a long time or that they will quickly acclimate themselves and that you don't want to explain all this. Nevertheless, I must admit that in my most recent novel, The Gods Themselves, which came out last May, in the first part, I did a considerable amount of explanation of things, all of which was uh, perfectly correct, except where I extrapolated, you know. It's also been argued by critics of science fiction that uh, there is a certain puritanism running through all of you which makes human relations vestigial at best. Now, in the uh, explanatory material which goes in the early Asimov, you say that in your early stories you didn't put girls in them because you didn't know any. That's right. I began <laughs> writing before I'd had my first date. <laughs> but as most of you go on, the, the role of woman is either that of laboratory assistant or vaguely, this is my fiancée, Miss Quackthou, or whatever galactic name she has. There isn't much human interrelating emotion in science fiction, is there? This was true prior to 1960. One of the reasons was that in the early days of science fiction, most of the readers were teenagers, and rather introverted teenagers to whom girls were foreign. Uh, That's me. And uh, me too. Uh, furthermore, uh, science fiction was in the tradition of pulp fiction generally, which, if we leave out of account the love stories, uh, were all highly male. The adventure stories rarely had women in them, the detective stories, the westerns, they were all strongly masculine stories appealing to teenagers, teenage boys. Girls weren't, weren't reading it. And uh, it wasn't until 1960, in fact, when science fiction graduated from its pulp fiction beginnings that, and new writers came in, uh, that it began to have much of a strongly feminine uh, qualities or at least have a, a considerable amount of women characters. Well, let's say it's not to have sex. That's what I'm trying to say. Oh, and as a matter of fact, now nowadays, uh, science fiction is taking advantage of its own strengths to bring in sex in, a w in ways that other kinds of fiction can't. Again, if I may refer to my most recent novel, The Gods Themselves, the second part of that novel is placed in a different universe, where we have uh, creatures who have three sexes, three distinct sexes. And the entire second part deals almost entirely with the sexual nature of these otherworldly creatures. Uh, now, I'm human. I couldn't help but carry over into this otherworldly situation the sexual feelings that we have. But it gave me an opportunity to do more than I could have done here. Do you think that science fiction has any serious part to play in shaping the future? I don't mean just speculating about it, but do you think it has any social influence? I mean, it is no longer just read by teenage boys, although I would guess they may still be a big block. But do you think it's taken seriously enough to be... I mean, we talk, for instance, about George Orwell's 1984, but I don't know that it is really, except in cocktail party conversation, an influential book. Well, I doubt that you can point to anything in science fiction and say this has been influential. But science fiction taken as a whole has been, although even though nobody feels directly influenced. For instance, the mere fact 
that there was science fiction meant that when the time come came, the time came to plan a manned expedition to the moon it seemed just a little less silly and ridiculous to people generally because they had been prepared for it by science fiction even by something as primitive as buck rogers secondly most of the people in the world today who are interested in trying to predict the future in the sense of preparing for it have at one time in their life been interested in science fiction I cannot bring myself to believe that anybody who now will look at the future try to foretell what will happen try to allow for it, try to prepare for it can possibly not have been interested in science fiction at least in his youth if not now the kind of person who at no time in his life was interested in science fiction is the type of person who would under no circumstances be interested in the future. Now, H.G. Wells, who has a peculiar position in science fiction, not liked by some and regarded as a pioneer by others, in The Time Machine suggested, and I guess it wasn't The Time Machine, in The Croquet Player he suggested that our problem, the human race's major problem, was that it knew too much about itself. That if you were a happy Babylonian or an Egyptian plowing his fields, you knew too little about your past and speculated too little about your future to worry. But having discovered how terrible we've been for thousands of years, having seen, as he put it, the grinning skull of 5,000 years of history, we couldn't but be depressed about ourselves. Do you think reaching into the future might increase that depression? Well, it certainly does, apparently, because the number of anti-utopias that are written, utopias, uh, is enormous. Now, in general, in earlier times, there was no feeling of progress to history. In fact, if anything, there was a feeling of decay. The Golden Age was always in the past. The Garden of Eden was always something you were kicked out of. Uh, and the future was going to be just like the present, and could, the, the sameness could only be broken by a day of judgment, by a Ragnarok. The world would come to an end, and that was it. Barring that, there's going to be no change. Uh, I think, I think that there is no reasonable problem that science and rationality can solve, uh, provided the people of the world are willing to allow science and rationality to solve them. Now, this is a question. I honestly am afraid that mankind itself has turned away from science and is turning to mysticism, which will mean only destruction. Well, now, I remember reading as a child some foolish and charming stories called the Peterkin Papers in which the family always got itself into some kind of a mess and the lady from Philadelphia got them out of it. And one of them, having put salt into a cup of coffee, in a sense, polluted their uh, source of liquid, they made various scientific experiments, adding this chemical or that, and finally had an undrinkable sludge. And the lady from Philadelphia suggested that they make another cup of coffee. Do you think it's possible for us to cut loose, as it were, and make another world, or must we continually evolve? Hmm. slowly, technologically, putting uh, spirits of nitre into the coffee and then trying something else. Well, uh, if we stay on Earth, I'm afraid we're stuck with our past. But may I change the subject and say, as I recall, the Peterkin Papers was written by a lady named Hale. Lucretia P. Hale. No Any re relative? No relation oh. of mine. I'd be honored, but we're not related. <laughs> well, you see, I read the Peterkin Papers, too. Yes, they were uh, exercises in logic. Yes, and there's also a strong element of the wise men of Gotham there. You're ever being, being, you're ever in a position of superiority to these terribly yes. made you feel good. I think that was perhaps one of the things that made the teenage boys read science fiction. We found ourselves at the controls of the rocket, that returning from school and kicking pebbles along the street, and in no way in control of ourselves, we stopped at the corner and bought a copy of Amazing Stories or Astounding or Analog. Well, Analog was pretty intellectual. Planet Stories or whatever. And in about 10 or 15 minutes with slack jaws and glazed eyes, we were heading out. Oh, listen, I remember when I was in junior high and reading the science fiction magazines then in the early 30s, 
I have never in my life since had a sensation of pleasure quite as pure and unalloyed as that with which I picked up a new issue of a science fiction magazine and made ready to read it. Uh, oh, I, I just cannot put into words what it meant to me. I think that uh, it was a total escape. I mean, there's a good deal talking about escape literature, but in this one, we left the world altogether more often than not. And since we weren't much able to shape the world, we liked the simple difficulty of dealing with a huge rubbery monster which we could catch with our blaster. Mm. And yet, and yet, for goodness sakes, there were many of the aspects of the science fiction world of the 30s and even more of the 40s that were the real, like the real world of the 1960s and 70s. So that, in a sense, we outsmarted ourselves. We escaped to a world of the future, which meant that we found ourselves worrying then about the things that everybody's worrying about now, so that we've had 20 to 30 years of extra worry. <laughs> <laughs> and now the second part of the two-part interview with Frederick Pohl and Isaac Asimov. We've been refreshing ourselves with a minute's rest here and are at full charge of intellectual batteries again. Do you think also that science fiction has a built-in limitation, that because it is, in a sense, based on science, there's never going to be a Leo Tolstoy or an Anton Chekhov or a Thomas Hardy of science fiction? Well, I think there won't be, but I think for another reason. I think the limitation to science fiction really is financial. Nobody... Nobody really can make a living writing good science fiction. The market is too limited. Uh, it is possible to do make a good thing out of poor science fiction. I don't mean necessarily poorly written, but I mean science fiction which has been diluted so that it can get a large market. Uh, What's called the space opera, in other words. Well, even more than that, something which, which really, I, I hate to say this, but the Andromeda strain, for instance, mm. Uh, is I have not read it myself, but I have been told by others that as science fiction, it is poor. But it does catch something that everyone is interested in, the possibility of a plague from space. And it came out at just the time that our first astronauts were coming back, so that it seemed right there. And, of course, Mr. Crichton was able to put in a good deal of plausibility being a medical man, and it caught the public imagination. If there is a limitation of that kind, still, has it not developed in many different ways? Does it not promise, perhaps, to be more varied in the future? Well, it's even varied now. But my feeling is that when you get the Leo Tolstoy, he will write the kind of science fiction that the science fiction fans will not consider science fiction. Ah, there is that. When I was very young... Amazing Stories ran a contest to find a name for it and came up with the dreadful compound word scientifiction. Yes, I remember or that well. scientific shun, or whatever you want to call it. And the symbol was to be a pen harnessed to a cogwheel. <laughs> and that uh, definition seemed to me unsatisfactory. If you were asked, and you are scientifically trained to be concise, if you were asked for a short and caravansary overall definition of science fiction, what would you give? I'd say that science fiction was the, that branch of literature which dealt with the response of human beings to changes in science and technology. That's uh, so short that I could hardly think of another question on top of it. That leaves out, deliberately, I guess, on your part, uh, changes in human emotions. It has to do with only those changes which are brought about by changes in knowledge. Yes, and uh, that is, as you say, on purpose. That's because I firmly believe that these are the only changes that count uh, over periods of time where that are too brief for evolutionary changes. You can have evolutionary changes over the tens of thousands of years, but over the centuries, the only changes that are going to count are changes of human knowledge expressed in science and technology. 
Well, you speak as a scientist. George Santayana, speaking as a philosopher, once said, there is no savior and Mary is his mother, by which I take it that he meant that the existence of a system of belief is more important than its validity. Uh, well, all right, but I have my system of belief, you see. And my system of belief is twofold. One, I believe that the universe is run by certain generalizations called laws of nature based on the blind and random uh, motions of particles. And two, that the human brain can grasp these laws of nature and apply them. Now, I may be wrong in both, but those are my articles of faith. And I, for one, am happy with it. And now, Dr. Asimov, I'm going to bring in your, your colleague, Frederick Pohl, who has been a writer, a poet, a whole lot of things, and also a friend of yours. Commendably uh, silent through the early part of the program here has been Mr. Frederick Pohl, who is, like Dr. Asimov, a giant or a titan of science fiction, which means that you have had more than one book published, I guess. That makes you a titan. Now, as you remember, Dr. Asimov identified himself as a member of the, the classic school, that is, a science-oriented person who, in his uh, fiction, more or less believes that science, which has been our tormentor, can also be our salvation, just so that those who are not real fans will know where you stand Mr. Paul, where are you relative to him? I stand uh, firmly all over. Uh, I think there are any number of kinds of science fiction. It's not just a thing. In my uh, more frenetic moments, I'm perfectly willing to defend the proposition that all, all literature is a sub-branch of science fiction, and that the stories about the present day are merely one spe special case of what science fiction can deal with. And there are all kinds of science fiction. There's science fiction, which is basically gimmickry, Somebody invents a machine and he goes off and uses it for something, and that's the story. It's the kind of science fiction that has no machine in it at all. We have writers like Ray Bradbury who hate science, won't be caught dead in an airplane, won't drive a car, writes beautiful science fiction. Is it not true that in recent years the Bradbury type of writer has been increasing, the kind of man who thinks that if scientists roped together or towed out to sea and sunk, it'll be a better world, a kind of anti-science fiction? Yeah, this has happened, and it's a phenomenon of the marketplace. It's known as the uh, taking over of everything by the English lit majors, you know, have, who have become the editors of the book publishing companies and a lot of the magazines, and who don't like science, and therefore encourage the other kind of science fiction. At the same time, isn't it more than the marketplace? Isn't it part of a general and possibly unsound disenchantment with science in general? Now, what you say about the terror of uh, modern technology is so. Everybody feels that you can't cross the street without having your life threatened by some big mechanical thing racing down at you. But that's not science. That's gadgetry. That's machinery. Science is something different. Science is a way of organizing the acquisition of knowledge. And science fiction, in its purest form, has to do with ways of organizing knowledge. It has to do with ways of learning things and ways of doing things. And, you know, this, this does not involve inventing a ray gun and blowing somebody's head off with it. This involves thinking about what might happen under certain circumstances. You stipulate the circumstances, you try to figure out as best you can what would happen, and you write a story about it. Your statement is so reasonable, it makes it hard for him, but you, can, you don't have way. to attack him, you can comment <laughs> on it. Well, as a matter of fact, he, of course, is right. But I wish to denounce any thought that anybody, even those people who say they are, are against science or technology or gadgetry. Nobody is against them except with their big mouths. The people who worry about crossing a street because an automobile might hit them are more often than not in the automobile hitting others. Nobody is abandoning gadgetry. Everyone is trying to get more gadgets. Uh, and as a matter of fact, the kind of science fiction that is hard science fiction continues to do very well. The English lit majors may... Uh, to use Fred's phrase, may be pushing the publication of new wave books, but it's the good old-fashioned science fiction that keeps selling. But it doesn't keep getting published, Isaac, and you can see this for yourself. What happens is that the, the kid out in Rantoul, Illinois, who suddenly happens to think that maybe he's going to be a science fiction writer, 
does not have the stamina or the energy or the ability or the skill, doesn't have the background to really know what it is he wants to do for himself. So he looks to see what's being done and copies it. I am, despite being an English major, an old-time science fiction reader, and I go back to Hugo Gernsback and Amazing Stories, as I said, and those marvelous soft charcoal drawings by Paul. He could, he could do drawings of crystals, which frightened me. I just kind of look and think they're coming off the page at me. But granted that the letters column in the early <coughs> magazines was beyond me when people wrote in with equations to prove that a certain story could not have happened in that way. What I'm getting at is that in the early Asimov, the book which drew us here in an almost uh, Tolstoyan terror pity sense <laughs> Dr. Asimov showed us how he had been through many many years of making about $700 a year out of science fiction and thinking of himself really as a scientist which he is and was actively until a few years ago what was your beginning? Oh I was hooked from the age of 12 I uh, rather thought when I was about 12 that I would be a writer I'd begun to try and uh, when I was well, it's hard for me to say when because things happened in different ways then. When I was 15, I wrote a poem. When it was 16, it was a, I had someone accept it. When I was 17, somebody published it. When I was 18, I got paid for it. So at some point in that period, from 15 to 18, I became what seemed to me a professional writer, or at least a poet. And from then on, I really had no uh, intention of ever doing anything else except for fun as a digression. But you don't have a Bachelor of Science, sir. I don't have a high school diploma. Ah. I'm a dropout class of 37. Well, then this I was going. I was going to tell you that. I'm glad it came <laughs> out. And as I say in the early Asimov, despite the fact that he's a high school dropout, he's smarter than almost any college, smarter than any college graduate I know. I hate to say this. Well, you were uh, colleagues early on. He was occasionally your editor, occasionally your agent, occasionally your collaborator. Now, occasionally not... my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Generally his friend, often quarrelsomely, but friendly. Is it not true that science fiction writers, even though they write all kinds of science fiction, from uh, social extrapolation to the most intensely scientific material, you do tend to form into associations and groups and have... Uh, get-togethers much more so than other writers. Don't like you? the loyal order of Hibernians. I mean, you can't take us uh, one from another. We live together. We live in each other's pockets all the time. We have these conventions and conferences and clubs and meetings. And uh, if we don't meet anywhere else, we meet in studios like this, you know, because we do spend a lot of time dealing with each other. Uh, I, I, I was guest of honor at the World Science Fiction Convention a little while ago this fall. And uh, I was asked to give my views on what science fiction really meant to me as a sort of a keynote speech. What I said was that we're all one family. We fight among ourselves as any family fights. But my God, I've been in Russia and Japan and Brazil and most of Western Europe, and I've met science fiction writers and readers who were of all different nationalities, skin coloration, languages. And they're all the same people. What is the same about them? Well, it's an attitude. It's, it's, what, uh, it's what distinguishes the scientific method, method from the per precursors of science. It's what distinguishes the science fiction from uh, just stories that relate to what we call laughingly the real world. It's a willingness to accept a hypothesis and try to see where it leads you. It's a willingness to think in terms of possibilities. It's a willingness to look beyond the here and now. Well, let me, I'm trying, still trying to get a little war going between the two of you, because I've assigned you the role of the, uh, the arts major, as it were, that you reject and I'll, I'll defend that role, Haywood, because there are some things that science fiction does better than anything else around, and they don't really have much to do with uh, hard science or with machines or with traveling through space. Uh, it's, what, it's the sort of thing that the think tanks do not as well. It's ways of projecting possible futures and seeing what they'll feel like when you get into them, trying them on for size, seeing if you're comfortable in them. And there's no better way of doing that than through science fiction. Science fiction can, in fact, make almost any possibility so real that you can see, you can feel for yourself whether it's a world you want or not, and therefore have the option of making decisions now which will encourage or discourage that future world. Well, now, in the book uh, which you are co-author, which is a favorite of mine, The Space Merchants, you 
take a curve assuming the increasing power of business, specifically advertising agencies, until they're finally running the world. And even though the very end of the book is hopeful, Dr. Asimov and I were talking earlier about where was the watershed where future fiction got gloomy, and are you gloomy about the future? You know he said he's not. Are you? I'm an optimist. I'm sometimes called Pollyanna. I think that uh, within the next few decades, uh, the overpopulation crisis will cause mass starvation, and we're likely to have nuclear war, and the atmosphere will be polluted to where we'll have to wear soot extractor plugs in our nostrils, and uh, the noise level in all cities will be so bad no one will sleep. And what makes me an optimist is that I think we'll survive it. Yes, I remember a cheery character in the space merchant saying, why do they want to go outdoors? If they feel the need, let them put soot stoppers in their noses and go up on the roof. And it may be, do you think, either of you, that what will make us survive is a tremendous change in the value of what we will accept? Yesterday, I preached a sermon to a local church, uh, the request of the minister, on politics. And I talked about what I thought would be a sensible political system for the United States, rather like the one we have. And uh, I tried to describe the path that would take us from here to there. And the only way to get from here to there is through a real disaster. I don't think that there is any way of getting to a better world in any way, any significant way, without so, so many bad things happen that out of desperation people are willing to contemplate major changes in their lives. And no one's quite that desperate yet. Now, I'm sure you're going to rise to that because a little earlier, you remember, you spoke lyrically of us standing on tiptoe at the edge of a new world and there was no plague in between us and that new world. You don't agree with that, do you? Oh, well, whenever I speak lyrically about the new world, I'm always making one great assumption, and that is that we solve the population problem. If we don't solve the population problem, we're headed for the Polian solution. If we do, then virtually can make the necessary changes without disaster. Now, there is a possibility that we might. In the United States, the birth rate has fallen to the point where, where we are replacing ourselves. I understand that the birth rate in China, for instance, is dropping because of the, of the propaganda actions of Chinese going from door to door saying, don't have babies and here's how not. The great danger is that as soon as the birth rate drops, there arise a whole group of people from out the doors and windows and up from under the carpet shouting race suicide. We are going to be in serious trouble because we are going to all vanish uh, as though we aren't at the absolute peak of population right now and as though with just a little bit of trying we can't double ourselves from any point in 30 years uh, to scare people into proceeding to have babies. Now, if we do, it can't last long unless we correct our population policies. Do both of you think that a possible role of science fiction is a minatory one to ring warning bells? Oh, I think that this is a major role, not the only one, but certainly one that it fulfills better than almost anything else. But I'd like to ask Isaac a question. Isaac, remember when we were... I mean, cast your mind back to the mists of time when you and I were 17 or 18. I remember. And remember if you will, uh, what we used to do. We used to walk around the streets at all hours of the day or night. We never seriously considered anybody mugging us or robbing us, partly because we didn't have anything for them to steal, but partly because that didn't happen. It was not That's part right. of our world. If someone had told you then that 30-some years later you and I would be in a city where neither of us dared stir out of doors after dark except in certain very carefully marked places, and that that was the same city we were living in then, would you have viewed that as a disaster? Uh, the answer is yes. Yes, the answer is yes, but I just want to say it's not the same city we lived in then. But what I am trying to say is that you say you hope we will avoid disasters. What I think will happen is that by the time they happen, by the time they come along, we will have had the chance to become used to them and we won't see them as disasters. But disasters, <coughs> they will be all the same. It is my own feeling, and this is just a personal one, that all that science and technology have given me that I value are painkillers and the printing press since I can't live forever and the, I think the Egyptians gave us something to make it feel better and the printing press coming along in the 15th century so I don't have to borrow one or two handwritten volumes what's seriously beyond that 
have we been given which has really increased the savor and nature of human life? Have you ever had major surgery, Haywood? Uh, yeah. And you're alive. Yes, the painkiller would have I'm not talking uh, about the cut my killer. leg off instead. I'm not talking about the painkiller. I'm t- talking about the fact that most of us are alive now only because of modern medicine. And as Isaac said earlier, too many of us are alive. A short <laughs> this life this and may a be, but one. as Isaac also said, we perceive that as a reasonable choice for other mm. people, but we hardly ever perceive it as a reasonable choice for ourselves. You know, uh, I may be able to view with some equanimity the possibility that the fellow outside in the street might not be alive, but I have much stronger feelings about whether or not I'm alive. Now, most of us, when we think of a pre-industrial society, or even just a pre-20th century society, always visualize it idealistically. We are always aristocrats of the time. We are always well-to-do people of the time. We have our servants. We ignore the peasantry, etc., etc. But were we really living in that time, the chances are huge that we would be at the bottom of that very squat pyramid. And most of us would be, I'm quite sure. I know I would. My parents, my ancestors were not uh, in the upper part of the pyramid. Most of them were not. And anyway, if you were able to go back in time to a point where you could uh, live this natural life. If you, could, if you were to look back at where such, a, what you, such a, um, an agricultural society does exist, you might say, gee, they have certain advantages that we don't ever have in modern 20th century New York City. Uh, there's less mental illness. You know, People don't die of cancer and things like that. And the reasons you don't see those things is not that they're not there, but simply that people have so much worse problems that they mask them. They don't die of cancer because they don't live long enough to die of cancer. They don't develop mental illness because they're too starving to have the to be able to show the symptoms of it. Well, now I return again. He's been very good, Doctor Asimov. He has not said my book in some time. <laughs> if but... he says my book in front of me, I'll punch him. Three <laughs> percent of that book is mine. But in the early Asimov, you see a young man beginning as a science fiction writer and rather charmingly saying in the biographical material which surrounds these stories, this or that story was rejected here, rejected there, then Fred Pohl took it or somebody else took it. But in the beginning, few of them, good or bad, and I think he's a little hard on himself in some of them, had any specific philosophy which you could call Asimovian and as the book goes along I who am familiar with his other writing means say yeah this is this is Asimov all right do you think it's possible to be a science fiction writer without a philosophy as Ibsen was a playwright who had no particular philosophy take one side of a moral problem write a play take the other side or are science fiction writers really Puritans to it that's why there's no sex in those books you're dedicated for the most part aren't you to philosophical ideals of No, I don't think uh, anyone among the writers I knew at the time the early Asimov was being written uh, was dedicated to that proposition. It's only that the editors enforced it on us. You know, they, they were quite puritanical because their publishers were quite puritanical because they deemed that the market was puritanical. But uh, it is true. I think that uh, the observation you make about Isaac's early work is, is so. It did not have the idiosyncratic uh, delights that you find in Asimov today. There are some writers who are slow starters. Isaac, I think, in that sense was one, and in that sense I think I was too. The first four or five years of stories that I wrote, I hope no one ever reads. You know, they're dull stories. Don't go that far. I mean, he's <laughs> put out such a book. We're all waiting for the early poem. <laughs> I don't, well, the early Asimov, I hate to say this in front of you, Isaac. But oh, go ahead. It, You'll it, say it is marginally better than the early poem. <laughs> At least uh, in, in certain respects it was. There are some writers who aren't like that. They begin with a tremendous uh, explosion of talent and maybe dwindle off after that. But do you a. Think a. Van Vogt's first story is considered by some to have been his best. Do you think that every science fiction writer has a specific attitude, outlook, which colors all his stories? I think that if he doesn't develop something like that, he doesn't survive as a science fiction writer. And I think Isaac would not have survived if he had not developed his own point of view, which is really the only thing that a writer has to sell or to offer that distinguishes him from anybody else. But in terms of other writers, non-science fiction writers, and ignoring your earlier claim that everyone's a science fiction writer, their goals are so broad. They like to use words like humanist, words which substantially mean nothing. And I would guess that uh, science fiction writers are much more 
specific as to a degree science-oriented people in what they want to accomplish. Either they want to accomplish social change or they want to make you think about some aspect or other of science. Aren't they much more specific? I think they differ among themselves. They come in all shapes and sizes, great and small. But I think that most of the science fiction writers I respect most do have this trait. They have something that they want you to see in the world or in the possible world. They want you to see just what it can mean if uh, science goes in a certain way or if uh, social affairs go in a certain way. And because they are interested in it, because it does mean something to them, they're able to communicate. I don't think there's a great deal of dispassionate science fiction written. Most people, I think, involve themselves in it. Well, then, let me now set up a sort of little science fiction situation. Each of you, we will say, has got about 30 seconds before a mad fellow who is flat and a mile wide on some distant planet is going to shoot you through time and you won't be heard of it. And you get 30 seconds to leave that message. What is it? I'll start with Frederick Paul. What is it that you want to say in your science fiction? I want to say that the human race is not, is not the prisoner of a god or of an environment, that it can create its own destiny and that uh, its choices are almost infinite, and I want to explore those choices. The tentacle of the creature is on the knob, about to send you away, Isaac Asimov. You've got 30 seconds to send us your message. What do you like to say? What do you want to say in your science fiction? What I like to say is that mankind has a three-pound brain, which is the most complicated thing that was ever formed as far as we know, and it is only through the use of that brain by the laws of rational logic that he will ever get anywhere. And when he departs from that, he's doomed. On that uh, cheerful note, and assuming that uh, we are not going to depart from it, and that right after the apocalypse, we're all going to have a picnic on the remains of the earth, I thank you, Isaac Asimov and Frederick Pohl, for being with us today. You have just heard the raw, unedited two-part interview with science fiction writers Frederick Pohl and Isaac Asimov from thevoicesoffandom.com and their Fandom Oral History Project. This has been episode 30 of the Krypton Radio original series, The Event Horizon, for September 14th, 2013. The episode will air again on Sunday, September 15th, 2013, at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The part of the science officer was played by renowned science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The part of the engineer was played by fandom dignitary Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was played by Corsair's closet producer Christine Cherry, and the role of the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents are copyright 2013 by the Krypton Media Group Incorporated. Stay tuned for more great music and tonight's episode of X-1. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>